0: Hi there, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, about an hour-long discussion with an author about her or his latest book. I'm your host, Ian Cook, and today we're talking about The Trouble with Marriage, Feminists Confront Law and Violence in India, published by the University of California Press in 2015, and is written by Srimati Basu. Srimati is a professor of gender and women's studies and anthropology at the University of Kentucky. Now, are solutions to marital problems always best solved through legal means? Or should alternative dispute resolutions be celebrated? Now, in her latest book, Srimati answers such questions and many more through explorations of lawyer-free courts and questions surrounding understandings of domestic violence, analyses of the way rape intersects with marriage and how kinship systems change with legal disputes, and by delineating the most important acts that frame marriage law in India. This book is theoretically and politically astute and offers a really unique ethnographic insight into the legal sites of marriage trouble in India. I had the pleasure of speaking with Shamati just a few moments before. Okay, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Srimati to the show. Now, your book, which explores how feminists confront law and violence in India, has a very evocative title. It's called The Trouble with Marriage. And I think a good way in which we can dive straight into the heart of your book is to ask what you mean by this title. What is The Trouble with Marriage in India?
1: Um, Hi, Ian. Um, Thanks for talking uh, to me about the book. And um, I think that the the idea of for thinking about trouble in uh, the trouble with marriage um, was to, you know, in kind of this um, old tradition in uh, anthropology of law, among other things, is to think with marriage as a sort of diagnostic um, to see what um, marital troubles kind of tell us about um, um, social problems and so in this case, um, I was interested in looking at um, feminist legal reform, primarily reform in the 1980s, you know, partly, um, partly very uh, locally re- uh, related to India and very much also part of um, global feminist reforms in the 1970s and 80s. Um, so these feminist reforms on marriage, you know, there's a lot of sort of action around marriage. Um, and um, I'm looking at the consequences of that, right? Or uh, what's emerged that we thought would happen, what, what good things have emerged, what unexpected things have emerged. So um, so um, when we look at this feminist reform and its concentration on marriage on, on uh, at that time, um, very heteronormative marriage, I would say, um, is that um, feminists were kind of actively involved in making sure that, um, women's ability to leave marriages violent or not were um, and were have, were better um, were improved. Um, and what's happened is that they've given in rise to new ways of imagining marriage and divorce. You know whether or not one is in marital trouble, we imagine marriage in a different way, right? So I say that they've created sort of new subjectivities around that. In you know in these figures of counselors, judges. But also, people who, um, women themselves who go to court much more than often before are sort of different. But um, I would say that while divorce has become easier over time, um, laws are also being are also used in ways that were unanticipated by um, within this feminist reform, right? And so the laws are also changed in the process. So, um, as you read, uh, the ways in which rape law is used by parents to cut off uh, um, or to um, intervene in their children's marriage choices or the ways in which alternate dispute resolution, which was seen as a big solution um, to the problems of law is often used to reconcile couples to um, violent homes. Right. So, um, so this, so, um, I talk about this in, you know, this kind of law and society studies has um, a basic tenant that people bargain in the shadow of law, right? That law is a sort of strategy for negotiating options. So, um, um, I think I'm I'm very keen to get away from this language of whether we have a good law or a bad law, um or um whether there is you you, the, you hear the word misuse a lot, whether laws are being misused. So rather I think laws are for use, right? Um, Santa, so very often when um I'm teaching um, about law in society, um we go around and think about all the sort of laws in our lives and the ways in which once it exists, it shapes you know, our, our um, sense of the world differently. So all the ways in which we go around various kinds of laws here, um, you know, marriage often seems to people be the place where laws are being misused, but really that's true of other kinds of things. So in this case, um, so um, the trouble as I see it is that the state seemingly following feminist governance has relied too much on women being within marriage in order to uh, lead good lives, right? On, you um, so as a result, it's been um, unable to uh, legislate or even imagine other forms of uh, being for women um, and, you know, other forms such as parental inheritance or matrimonial property or the labor market, et cetera. So uh, you must have noticed that the book is called The Trouble with Marriage, but by the time uh, I'm at the conclusion, the conclusion is called The Trouble is Marriage. Mm-hmm. So in short... The main uh, trouble is relying on marriage, right? So instead of debating, uh, very often when I present this, people uh, we, the debate ends up in uh, in the realm of whether legal reform is an um, is an effective feminist strategy, right? Whether we should turn to the law or not. But here I'd emphasize that um, law always lives in the world by uh, making trouble, or you know, help and or helping. But here we want to notice the trouble that our imaginations of marriage cause, right? So let me just very quickly um, read you two lines from the conclusion to to that effect that um, I say there. Marriage is more than one site of structural vulnerability captured in law. It is at the core of gender trouble. Um, So by this logic, when women are supposed to kind of legitimately deploy their sexuality in the commodity market of heterosexual marriage, um, they are seen to be set for life. Their parents need not consider them entitled to any portion of family resources. They need not engage the labor market. Um, they are to rely on the income of the husbands and affines. They need not worry about having matrimonial property because so if they're good wives, they can access the results of that, uh, the resources, the household. Sorry. So um, And you know, because that's what's always imagined to be at the center of things. That, that creates the various kinds of problems that we see.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wonderful. That's, uh, that's really set us up for the rest of the discussion. Now, I really enjoyed reading the book and it's extremely rich and it, and it covers many different areas. But before we go into the book in detail, I was wondering, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? What's your academic background and what drove your interest in this topic?
1: So I have... Um, I work in an interdisciplinary field, gender and women's studies, right? So, um, and um, as uh, befittingly, I guess, I've wandered through um, various kinds of training. So um, my bachelor's and my master's degrees are actually in English literature. I studied in India, and then um, I did a master's at Purdue. And um, I think that's where I became interested both in, um, you know, it was a moment in grad school where, Um, There was more work in feminist theory and postcolonial theory. And I became really interested in doing something that uh, moving beyond uh, just literally texts to looking at, um, you know, sort of people's lives and their stories. And so um, I actually have an interdisciplinary Ph.D. from Ohio State, which um, combines anthropology and uh, cultural studies work in English along with a whole lot of work. Um, in what was then women's studies, now in my department is gender and women's studies, and so my interest in that is indeed to look very interdisciplinary at all of these issues and how they're put together. Um, so did, I, did did you ask me my background? Or?
0: Yeah, that's good. That's what I, that's what I, that's what I want to know. It's good. It's good for people to know who they're who they're talking with or who they're listening to. Yes. <laughs> and it's and I think you can feel this interdisciplinary, like in the in the book itself. So, um, yeah, let's, let's, turn, let's turn to the book. And I think the first um, full chapter after the, after the introduction, you, you lay out some of the most important acts that, that frame marriage law in India. Could you please tell us about these?
1: So um, I looked at, um, you know, I basically picked um, four acts that um, help us maybe look at Um, certain points I was making so they are in turn I looked at the Muslim Dissolution of Marriage Act uh, of 1939 um, the Hindu court bill debates uh, in the 1950s um, and then I looked at this uh, 1974 report of the Committee on um, the Committee on the Status of Women in India, sorry, um, because I think it's one of the, everyone believes that it's one of the very critical feminist documents to um, to lay out, indeed, to mainstream um, feminist ideas um, into governance in a way. So I looked at that. And then at the Family quotes Bill. So I was thinking that one could also answer that question by looking at a different set, right? So um, you would know this from uh, having worked in South Asia, that um, there are other equally important points. So, for example, the Muslim Women's Act of 1986, which you know is notorious for uh, the way in, uh, the Shabano case and the ways in which politics and um, uh, religion kind of affected case law. Uh, there is a, a reform of Christian law, um, which is finalized in 2001. Um, the Hindu Succession Amendment Act, um, I think, 2005. Um, I think most importantly, another law that would go along with this group of laws I looked at, but it was kind of too late in the process for me to do it, is the Protection um, of Women Against Domestic Violence Act, Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of a civil law, um, supposed to be a civil with criminal elements, that's how it's described, law that looks at domestic violence. And um, I should say, we don't here have another thing I didn't look at, but Um, The shadow of which hovers over the book is the laws around domestic violence. In this case, it is Section 498A of the um, Indian Penal Code. So um, that's kind of the landscape of laws and the development we are looking at. And I should say I'm keeping my my eye on uh, recent bills that are coming up to um, reform matrimonial property in tandem with introducing irreconcilable differences um as a ground of divorce so um that would nicely round up many of the things i'm looking at here so
0: wonderful let's uh let's turn for a minute to one of these alternative modes of justice you you mentioned it in your answer to the first question these sort of um you know these these ways which are the, the sort of systems that try to look at ways of reaching resolutions away from formal legal structures and and often as you say in the book these are often quite uncritically celebrated but as your research in the Kolkata family court revealed things of course are much more complicated aren't they
1: yeah um you know this is how I got into it because um, I was interested in what it means to have um alternate dispute resolution so um um um, as you know that chapter is called justice without lawyers so right so Mm -hmm. partly out of this again comes out a lot of it comes out of um, this excitement around alternative dispute resolution uh, yeah, around the 1980s. I mean, there's a much longer history of that. But in that time, I think it comes into um, business and arbitration, but it also comes into family law. And the main sort of... Um, um, imagination of this thing is that people feel I mean you all of us feel kind of alienated by a legal setting right it seems grim it seems distant so the idea was um that if you um if there are ways of um um making people more comfortable talking to them in uh the language that they're more used to right um working out a kind of customized solution to what they need right rather than a formula of what the law offers, that maybe there would be um, better outcomes, that people wouldn't so much look to law as something distant and punishing. And so this is where it comes from, the idea of family courts as places that um, uh, people can come to solve issues related to marriage, custody, etc., by... um, speaking kind of directly to a judge by talking to a counselor in their own language rather than citing uh, chapter and verse of laws. So, um, but as you see there, so it was imagined that lawyers would not, I mean, there are various forms of this across the world. I I I go into that in the book, I won't name them here. But the form that it took in India is that lawyers were um, not supposed to appear in courtrooms. I mean, that has not really panned out um, for uh, reasons that I go into. But just to explain it to hear, you hear that um, lawyers were sometimes people would say they're supposed to leave uh, their robes outside. They can't act um, um, as lawyers in the courtroom. People were uh, going to say their own piece, right? They were going to, um, you know... Uh, put their own case together, write their own petitions, all in their own language, right? Represent themselves, cross-examine. So um, as, as you see then, um, that's not that easy to do, right? I mean, it's not that I would watch it, you know, for, for years or when I sat in on these hearings. Um, I would think, wow, uh, you know, I, I basically as a professor make my living by talking in public and writing, and I would find it difficult to just like stand up and cross-examine someone, or um, you know, put together a case so that the exactly right points are highlighted, because let's not forget that you know these are family courts. I mean, they take different forms in different places, right? But in India, it's a fa- it may be an informal court, but it's the it's a lower level court, so. Um, you know, the judge needs to um, assemble the evidence just so, right? Um, they need to refer to certain points of law and fit it into that. So um, not only are they used to a certain way of doing things and, um, you know, um, and as you saw, there's, um, when I look at the language of the ways in which this happens, you see a lot, this is um, the, the third chapter, which we're not talking that much about today, but, you um, you see a lot of slippages between how people construct their lives and what judges say. And, um, you know, the, this, um, um, case of, um, Rupa and, and Rupa, I believe that I discuss in, uh, that chapter has to do with a woman who's actually very enthusiastically prepared, like totally over-prepared to be in court. But, um, the judge kind of says to her, um, um, do you want to do all the cross-examining? Should I just go away? So judges are not used to the way of doing business, right? <laughs> so, um, and, you know, I mean, processes of appeal have to be within the structure of law. So it's an uh, attempt to imagine law in an alternate way without um, really being able to understand how that would fit into into the larger legal structure as a whole. Um, and so, secondly, you know, like... um um it's also becoming, you know, so now feminist groups are deeply divided between those who think this is good, alternative resolution is good for all the reasons I said, it makes people comfortable, they can go in there, whatever. Um, versus people who say, what's wrong with lawyers? A person needs an advocate when they're in court. Um, you need someone to be for you, no matter how viciously, right? Um, and so we have this interesting moment in which feminist groups, particularly groups that work on violence against women, think that um, a woman needs someone to be standing with her who knows what they're doing, right? So when you are there representing yourself, you may not be um, able to do that in the same way. And so they think that lawyer's power is exchanged more for judges' power and how do we know that that's good for people necessarily? So uh, the counselors who are who are not lawyers, but uh, paralegals of the court and judges are... Um, Deeply divided from other feminist activists on that score, on whether um, lawyers will be needed or not. But also, as I lay out, you know, over time, um, <laughs> judges themselves feel very conflicted about whether they uh, they can leave lawyers out. And each judge, you know, over this 10, 15 year period has varied in their attitudes to um so in the Kolkata court, there's always one woman judge and one male judge. In the, um, given the nature of the courtroom, there's two courtrooms. So um, they varied uh, greatly in how they will let lawyers in or not. But basically, the kind of case law on uh, having the right to, rep- to be represented by someone has prevailed. So nowadays, judges actually like advise people who they think are falling behind that they might do. So I, I would say that the justice without lawyers thing is kind of... Um, uh, mostly, you know, uh, imaginary right now. Mm -hmm. But um, the one other thing I wanted to say, um, once again, this is um, somewhere in chapter three, um, is that, you know, mediation often urges solutions um, in the language of equivalency, right? In the language of compensation. So it says, let's make your trouble go away. It'll be much easier if you can get the sum of money, right? But, um, you know, there are different registers for what one wants out of law. And it's possible that when it is problems of um, marriage, such as adultery or problems of domestic violence, um, those are not necessarily satisfied by monetary solutions, even if, um, they, even if the problem goes away, even if the, the presence of the husband goes away. So you can see that people may want a different kind of um, hearing or recompense from law. And finally, um, the thing about mediation could also be that, you know, I do think that um, uh, I didn't feel that um, these judges and counselors were um, uh, not acting in the best possible way that they thought how, right? They very sincerely considered themselves an extension of the family. Like I said, this judge said, um, you know, this is how you're – Sister should have been talking to you if she knew what was good for you, right? So they, they see themselves working very sincerely. Um, they, I think, work very hard to make sure people leave, women particularly leave there with some kind of economic compensation, that they're not just kind of at the mercy of themselves or their relatives, that they get something out of the marriage, no matter how meager. Sometimes they're not very much, often they're not very much, but they do work on that. But that somehow, if they see that women's main interests may lie in um, given the lack of another home, etc., may lie in going back to the marriage or to the extended family of marriage, maybe to send them back there where they very well know there are sort of violent conditions. And um, um, uh, as you saw that, that both, um, I understand that it comes from a certain impulse to look in on them and the lack of other options, but it's also um, sort of disconcerting to see that the result of mediation may be reconciliation, no matter what. That reconciliation is often, I'm told from other people in um, other family courts in India, such as in um, the Mumbai Family Court, that they don't, they try to stay away from reconciliation. But Calcutta is by no means the only place where uh, reconciliation is seen as the only optimal solution to, you know, that alternate dispute resolution takes the form of mediation, Really, I mean, uh, takes the form of reconciliation.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I suppose one of the <clears throat> other big things, which uh, one of the other big topics apart from law that we're talking about, but we haven't named it yet, is kinship. And uh, yes. kinship is uh, sort of became academically unfashionable for a while, but but now it's back with a vengeance, and I think yep. it's good. And I think it's good that it's <laughs> yeah. back, right? Because uh, it's it's it seems so important to understanding, especially the, the changes which are going on in India right now. And there's a there's a really beautiful line. About, um, about chapter four, but it's in the introduction, and you say that new forms of kinship are created in court even as the breakdown of kinship systems is diagnosed. So Zoni, could you please tell us what you mean by this and also how this reflects the tensions between what we call in joint families and also the, the modern con- companionship forms of marriage in India?
1: Yes, yeah, so um, um, I think we all are very happy that right? Uh, if you work in anthropology that kinship is back <laughs> and
0: yes. it's in so, so yeah. many
1: forms, both yes. new forms of kinship through different families, right but also um forms of kinship through through workplaces through mm-hmm. um you know new forms of kinship through uh, different kinds of reproductive technologies right so all of that is um kind of open in there. so I would say that you know one of the things that um really struck me um is the way in which Um, This whole language of kinship um, is um, critical to the ways in which judges and counselors do their work, right? They cast themselves, you know, they appear as the better relatives in that story, right? Um, So that's one level. I mean, they constantly use the language of that. They use it to get entry um, to people's families. They pick up their own um, familial kinship. Um, networks in order to help certain other people. Um, in in this context, um, for example, um, many pe- many of the um, councillors in this context um, worked within in, within linked political parties. They worked within the so called political left in West Bengal at that time, and, um, and that too constituted a kind of um, kinship system. So um, there is this whole realm. You know, there are all those realms. Um, uh, of the ways in which you know uh, many of these uh, men and women, and this is particularly true for women um, find themselves coming to court, forming relationships, having kind of daily um, interactions with people and going out with them, interacting with them in ways they haven 't so there are all of those things right so that 's one dimension I think that 's the dimension you were referring to earlier mm-hmm. The second part is when I was looking at cases in court and the ways in which, um, I don't know, both kinship and what I was calling conjugality or something like, um, well, how should we define what conjugality is? Something like um, expectations of. Companionate marriage or romantic marriage, right? Like the nuclear family and your responsibilities towards it, how you're a good husband, right? Um, is in conflict with what we are calling kinship, which is how you are a good son or a daughter in law or you know, less seen here, how you're a good daughter and son-in-law, possibly. So um so I think in most in most divorce cases, if you look you know, cross-culturally at studies of divorce, uh, people have to uh, stand up in court and talk about how they were good wives or husbands. I mean, well, where, where, uh, you don't have no fault divorce. You have to do that, right? You have to say um, um, how you have failed or how you have succeeded, et cetera. So here, it's interesting that people have to simultaneously um, do both, and both are equally important, Right? So um, very often um, husbands may say, well, I can't, you know, I can't pay because I have, you know, X amount of economic expenses to the extended family. And judges are, you know, uh, completely sympathetic to those facts because indeed it's, it's, I mean, we don't know, you know, the details of how any one person saying it is indeed paying their parents or not, but um, that's the expectation that you might, Right. On the other hand, um, as you saw, husbands sometimes (laughs) will have to, you know, the wife would claim as part of cruelty or neglect that they haven't been a good enough husband. And then they have to produce those, you know, 200 pictures of when they went on vacation with their family or um, what they said to their husband to prove their love. So these are like two, um, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) very different kind of discourses um, around uh, marriage and family. So as you know, right, it's been... In South Asia, um, and, you know, here is a thing that even my students in the U.S. have imbibed that um, from watching films like that is family or whatever, that it's the extended family. That's it, right? There is no individuality. (laughs) You know, that's what we imagine um, from kind of hardcore um, anthropology in South Asia to be. And I just think that that operates as a discourse, right? And conjugality operates as a discourse. And um, there are different sets of economic rights that pertain to both. So um, so the question is, how do people navigate that often with difficulty, right? So, for example, I, um, uh, I described how um, wives, when um, they go to court, very often um, have to say, I mean, if the allegations are against them, that they didn't, you know, make the proper kind of bread or, you know, they uh, didn't treat some extended relative the same way. They don't, they don't typically in court say, no, why should I do that? Right. They have to work within that norm. And so that they have to work within that norm to say, oh, I tried the best I could. I'm really good at domestic work. I'm really devoted. You know, that's the trope, right? Mm-hmm. Whether one fulfills it or not, or whether one chooses to fulfill it or not. Um but, in you know so one of the reasons that you one of the often one of the complaints that you hear is that if there is violence in the extended household, their judges are more willing to separate the separate the couple or the nuclear unit and put them in a different household. So of course, we know that you know all kinds of other studies prove to us that there is a great deal of level of uh, domestic violence generally. Now, whether those these households have that or not, I don't know right. But as far as the judge is concerned, being in the extended family for a woman to say she is in the extended family is not a cause for moving her out. But um, if there is kind of if she can prove some kind of record of there being trouble within the extended family, uh, domestic or power and authority or the mother-in-law or whatever, then that might be a good reason to set up a nuclear household. So that's a constant tension. (laughs) <laughs> right um, let me just say one more thing that you know as as you saw i i kind of talk about this in two kinds of uh through two kinds of tropes one um one the ways in which men therefore husbands get caught in this um uh expectation of having to be as i was saying um both both good sons and good husbands at the same time and that These often in the I since I looked primarily at um, urban conflicts um, uh, and cases because of cases that came into those courts, that these pose sort of um, all kinds of contradictions around where one is going to live, how are you going to do your economic responsibilities, etc. Right. Um, But economic responsibilities are still like a really important part of marriage, right? As I looked at a a few cases that came in there of um, women who had uh, wives, in this case, who had um, some kind of mental disability, there you could really see that the system was falling apart, right? So in um, other kinds of cases, it's um, when divorce is coming up, it's often um, women's families, I mean, uh, wives, try to um, sort of in claiming a life for themselves, they move out of the marriage and they move to a different house or they move um, back to their parents or whatever. Um, And husband's families in that case um, often go to court to want them back saying um, that they don't want to pay for them to go away, that their economic responsibilities lie within the family. But in these cases where, um, women had mental disabilities, the system sort of breaks down because it's uh, their families who, it's the women's families who want, um, in these cases certainly, wanted them to remain married. And husbands in that case who were making a claim for a separate life, right? So part of that is, bec- even even if it seems as a contradiction, it's, it's because, um, again, um, if women's... Um, economic kind of ultimate economic sort of property resources seem to lie in marriage, then it's unclear how that transfers in in these cases of mental disability, right? That they have no, essentially, it goes back to this thing that I had worked on earlier in my previous uh, book, um, that women are believed to be disentitled to any kind of care by their, um, by the families they're born into, by their natal families, right? So,
0: <laughs> okay, thank you. I think I think I said before that we were talking about chapter four, but that of course is 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 chapter five. No, um, yes. yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> in the okay. next in the next uh, in the next chapter, I mean, it, what what struck me is when, when the first time I ever moved to to South Asia, and I was like reading newspapers and so on. You would read you would read stories, especially online, and it was where it's a bit more sort of trashy journalism as well, like when they, they just, just tell all the cases of, in these gossipy ways, you, you hear all these really quite shocking stories. And I'm sure for those who are unfamiliar with South Asia, that they'll also find this shocking. Like, for instance, there are, or, or maybe have lots of questions around them. Like, there's there's rape charges brought against men who, after they had sex with women, then they refused to marry the women as they promised to do before sex. Or there's offers of marriage by rapists to those who they rape afterwards. And there's also... Of there's also rape charges brought against partners who elope together against their family's wishes. So I was wondering like these these, these things as, as you as you argue in the book, they, they speak to each other in some way. So I was wondering what the such charges and offers, what do they tell us about the functioning of the family in India?
1: So um yeah, here, you know, um, um I had got into this chapter in looking at some of these cases, right? But while I was working on this, um, as you know, the Um, sort of topic of rape in India um, kind of exploded around in the last um, few years, right? So um, we know that um, since the 1980s, um, feminist groups have been um, quite vigilantly looking at rape law reform, you know, different things have been reformed. Um, Notably, you know, this starts um, in India, this the, the sort of feminist history often dates back to the Mathura case. Um, and there was um, a letter filed by some uh, law professors and legal scholars that led to uh, many kind of substantive changes in rape law, including, you know, one of the things that um, folks may not know elsewhere is that one of the big changes was um, bringing in what is called custodial rape so that um, people who are... Um, in kind of custodial positions to people coming in. These are these are you know rape survivors who've come in. So the police or um, prosecutors or uh, people in you know uh, homes for women, etc., um, were I mean the, the military right were um, held to be held to a stricter standard when it came to gender balance um that they often uh, that rapes they often um perpetrated on people who had come to tell their stories right? so there is this long history of um kind of um, <clears throat> drawing attention to rape on the streets rape in um in the military among the police and also um i would say in the uh, uh in the context of, you know, sort of defining, um, um, what it, you know, what consent means, how should, how should we think about rape, et cetera. So in this, um, it's interesting that given this rape law, when I began looking at these rape law cases, I was struck by, you know, three different kinds of cases that have emerged. Right. um, uh, let me just back up for a second, um, mm-hmm. and say something. So, um, so there's this long trajectory of people looking at, as I said, um, rape on the streets, sexual harassment on the streets, often called eve teasing in India. Um, so rape by the military or police, um, this whole kind of um, entitlement based rapes, right, of, um, on, uh, that often track the lines of caste. So this kind of entitlement to Dalit women's bodies by upper-class landlords that mm-hmm. so there is a long record of. So um, so we know that there are these kinds of rapes. There's been long feminist protests of rapes, right? And we also know, um, like Pratisha Bhakti has a very incredibly um, you know, brilliant and detailed ethnography called Public Secrets uh, that came out a couple of years ago, where she shows why, um, you know, rape prosecutions are so difficult, why there are, you know, There's a very low rate of prosecution because, you know, because of the ways in which memory works, because of the ways in which people manipulate evidence, right? So we know that rape law is really difficult. It's not that rape is not happening. It's that rape is difficult to prove. But, Mm -hmm. you know, who is making use of it? So, you know, what do we want? We want people who have committed rape to be brought to justice. But here I then looked at the trail of ways in which um, rape intertwined with marriage and to see these three kinds of cases, right? First, Um, The cases that you were referring to in which there is this whole um, kind of track record of case law um, so that if you have a sexual relationship with someone where um, you have made a so-called false promise of marriage, as in um, that the person believes that you had sex with them, but really you were going to marry them at some point. And then you didn't, you changed your mind. So, you know, the, the case that I write a lot about um, was a couple who had been um, in a relationship for 10 years. I mean, they were in a consensual relationship for 10 years. And um, at the end of it, the and not at the end of it, at the point at which the case was filed, the man said he didn't want to discontinue the relationship. He just didn't want to get married. Um, and, you know, but that led to, when I went into that, I looked at a whole slew of cases where. Um, this kind of promise to marriage of people in ongoing consensual sexual relationships um, could file rape charges, not breach of promise, not breach of contract, rape charges. Um, Because it's, you know, the logic of that is something like, um, it's like the logic of a property crime. It's the ways in which rape law was often seen as a property crime, right? That you have given up your virginity, which is a thing. And what, what do we do there with this whole apparatus of consent to a sexual act, right? Were, were, were people consenting to sex or were they consenting to marriage? Like, what does it even mean to consent? And so this is tied then to those other cases you saw in which it is totally irritating trend of um, judges who occasionally uh, in a rape case say to the defendant, why don't you marry the woman? Or sometimes the judge doesn't say, and sometimes the defendant offers marriage as a way of getting rid of the rape claim. So, um, and, you know, um, like, they will restore them to honor. This is a rapist who wants to restore the honor by offering marriage, right? So what does that say about the status of marriage? And what does that say? I mean, these were cases in which there was absolutely, you know, like a huge overwhelming weight of evidence of really, like, abominably like brutal crimes and still in there, marriage is on marriage is on offer, on the table, in a courtroom mediated by the judge, right Um, and so there again, marriage functions as this kind of property resource, right, in the ways I was talking about earlier, and finally um, you know, I looked at the ways in which we were noticing all the ways in which sorry, I have this funny voice this week, Um, the ways in which kidnapping and abduction cases um, filings have gone up Right and rape cases filings have gone up, so um, so we might imagine that this is all kinds of things. We might imagine that things are more dangerous or that people are more aware and are filing more cases. But what in and um, both these sets of cases have lower low conviction rates. Right, so one of the things to track down there is um, that in fact a large number of these cases are filed by parents. Against um, so-called runaway couples, against their uh, children, often uh, often not young children, or not children below marriageable age, but, you know, um, children who are legally entitled to marry by claiming they are underage. The parents claim they're underage, that they've been kidnapped, they've been abducted. They file rape charges against prospective grooms um, as a way to control um, their daughter's sexuality, their mobility to enforce, you know, to go back to caste endogamy, class endogamy, religious endogamy. I think caste and religion are very important pieces of these things, right? And um, so this, you know, um, I mean, feminist thinking is so central to the ways in which um, rape law has been constructed, but in these cases, it's being used in exactly the opposite way to control women's sexuality further. And, And let me just add one more thing here that you know um, the the so what we have seen so there was this case in um, December 2012 that uh, made had a lot of resonance around the world. It got picked up by the media in a way. Um, it's you know both the Indian media and globally um, they behaved as if this is the first time anyone's been you know angry in rape uh, over rape in India etc. But in as I said there is a long trail of it. But You know, a a lot of us have been observing, though, that as a result, you know, what's happened is uh, there are so rape is imagined as this kind of specter to move to um, um, make the world more dangerous. Right. Mm -hmm. So in the intervening years, in fact, there are this is sort of after I finished writing the book. But, you know, it's I think it's very relevant that what we are seeing then is more further control on people's sexuality, further control of marriage, further control of movement, right? I mean, like in the lives of us who are not even, you know, who've been wandering around on our own in dark places for a long time, there is this attempt to suddenly tell us to not go places even. And, you know, and proportionately the more control there is over girls in um, households, it affects their education, it affects their marriage choices, so it's very depressing to think about how rape law functions to, um, you know, secure very kind of conservative ideologies of marriage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, and of sexuality as being uh, primarily located within marriage.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So. Thanks. Thanks for that. Um, the last uh, full chapter um, looks directly at domestic violence. We's, we've spoken a little bit about it. And uh, But it's nice because it, it really brings home the, the differences between criminal prosecutions and, and civil remedies. I was wondering, um, could you tell us about, you know, the differences between these two things and what this tells us about the way domestic violence is understood?
1: So, um, um, as I said to you, there's this um, law called, so I begin and I look primarily in that chapter at this um Criminal provision section four ninety eight, uh, which again is I think legislated in nineteen eighty four, and um, is a is a, is a is um, a stern sort of way to address domestic violence in that um, you can if you file a case against a person and if the police take the case, which ideally they should, whether they do or not. Um, They can arrest people without prior investigation. They can um, jail, uh, they can arrest and jail people. Um, They can, the charges cannot be taken away by uh, a person just saying so, etc. So um, it's a kind of a, oh, oh, and of course, um, the charges pertain not just to husbands but to family members, etc. So um, this is a law. It should. It was meant to address the different forms of the things we know about domestic violence in India, such that um, extended family members are involved. You know um, that very often people are unable to get out and tell their story, etc. But we see that this law often has um, a tremendously low conviction rate. Right, and this is in fact why the other law that I didn't look at, PWDBA, um, was proposed as a way to kind of um, be able to help people more now. Would you think it has a, a a low rate because it's not being used? It's used all the time, right? It's one of the things that's recommended to um, have on the record if there is any violence or if people think that should, that should uh, be one of the grievances. But um, in fact, what do people want when they file a domestic violence charge? And so in many of these cases, you see um, women who are filing these charges may want may just either want to go back to the marriage so so all the reconciliation stories i was referring to earlier or they may indeed want um to have some kind of a financial settlement if the marriage is truly breaking down so um these criminal charges then are also becomes the subject of um mediation alternate dispute resolution etc i know I, in every handbook of Mediation, it says criminal charges are not to be mediated, but they are here, in fact. So I have, among the various um, ethnographic pieces I did, was to sit in on police station hearings, where the police themselves are taking this on, right? So this is the criminal apparatus, where police are trying to work out what the conditions should be. But you also have um, a civil apparatus, such as in the family court and, you know, other kinds of civil venues, where you can work out divorce settlements. Now, over there... um, um, it's not, I mean, like in the family courts, it's not that women are neglected exactly in that, but they don't really have an advantage. They often get really small settlements, right? So because this criminal trial poses a threat, uh, poses a bigger threat, often poses a bigger threat to respectability, you know, to being taken off to jail, et cetera. Um, it's believed to uh, exert some leverage in the process, right? So one of the things um, I narrated was the ways in which both police and mediators, and sometimes people imagine it themselves. And certainly lawyers use criminal charges as a way to leverage civil settlements. And so the um, criminal thing goes away is made to go away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, which partly explains um, why so few cases are filed. So, I mean, I see like among many, like let me identify two big problems here. One is that, you know, as I um, follow through a certain number of cases, the the kind of timing, the whole sort of temporal structure of this is very unclear. The rules are very unclear. People in good faith trying to file a domestic violence case are often falling afoul of um, these various contradictory rules and why they weren't, you know, which venue should they be filed in, what should be the order, what should the police have said seems almost impossible to you know file a so called good case file a successful case that would go forward um for anyone trying to do that the second is that because it's so uh common as a tool of mediation and and you know this um it's not that people imagine it this is very often guided by lawyers police etc so what you have is that the maybe the person has a settlement um they can live with uh, monetarily or in terms of housing or whatever, at the end of the case, and the case goes away. But what happened to domestic violence? If there was domestic violence, then it's not, um, you know, um, at at the end of the day, the domestic violence charges are made to go away. So if there was any, any domestic violence going on, that's not um, uh, subject to kind of criminal sanctions. So, um And, you know, once again, to remember why rape cases had such low conviction rates, here too, I've sat in on hearings where people bring in often, you know, patterns of, let's say, neglect or, um, um, you know, daughters-in-law's kind of um, not very happy lives maybe in an extended household to the hearings rather than um, accounts of... um, you know, um, the sorts of corporeal violence, the sorts of um, grave physical violence that we're used to hearing of in trial. So when they do go to trial, um, it seems very difficult. You know, pro- once again, going back to that apparatus of evidence, it's very difficult to prove those charges. So um, for <laughs> all of those reasons, you know, the, um, the existence of both of these systems, you um, is, so this is what uh, we often call legal pluralism, right? All these operate simultaneously, criminal and civil law and mediation is advantageous in that people are ideally able to work them out against each other. But very often there are sort of less ideal outcomes. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Now, as is very often the case um, in these podcasts, I've shot through what is a really rich book and I've chosen questions that were, at least to a certain degree, aligned with what interested me. So I thought as a a way of a conclusion, would you like to highlight anything that you think I might have missed with my questions?
1: So um, I think one of the things... um, you know, um as I mentioned earlier my I come to this from an interdisciplinary interest right mm-hmm. um one of the things that really interests me is to think about it as a problematic in feminist legal theory or feminist jurisprudence um and um I really see this book as um, um occupying among among a few other um uh, books in the last few years occupying this space um and that's taking on questions of feminist theory of what is agency, what is consent, um, how do we, you know, what does legal subjectivity mean, what's the role of law, et cetera. And also um, theorizing marriage, right? Um, also, another sort of very important feminist um, trail of um, looking to, as I said, uh, the trouble of marriage as a sort of economic script for people and ignoring other things. Um, that um those are the questions that concern me because um in um within i would say the field of gender and women studies it's often been that uh, the the sort of feminist theory part has been based on um, you know us uk european um kind of models of theorizing and that the um, other parts of the world have been just kind of instantiations or examples of objection or why things don't work, you know. Um, And so I think looking at the, looking at everyday life to explore those same questions um, in the context of South Asia really um, helps us to um, understand those debates. So mostly, mostly studies of um, law in South Asia have also been kind of small scale um, sort of customary law kind of examples. So um, I was keen to kind of show what happens in in the realms of courtrooms or the ways in which we are dealing within it, with with that. So um, and the other thing I wanted to say that probably we didn't talk about is that I was really interested in writing. And, uh, you and I have talked about this a um, little earlier. I was really interested in writing an ethnography of of um, daily life in a courtroom where we would see. If um, we would see the personalities that come in and see the personalities mm-hmm. of the litigants and, the, um, you know, their conflicts, their um, deceptions, their, uh, you know, despair. So um, I have um, that's something that I uh, really sought to do so that uh, people read it in a way that the law is brought to them through um, stories, through the whole thing.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think this this really works like this. This is I mean it's a very enjoyable, maybe enjoyable is not the right word because some of the some of the topics are
1: horrifying, um, <laughs>
0: horrifying, yeah. Because they're engaging, like uh, an intriguing, book precisely because it's it's told through stories, right? And it's always the case when you when you're talking about something abstract like law, you know, like you, you might yeah. think, oh, am I gonna am I really gonna read like you know hundreds of pages about law? But it's it's exactly because you've got you've got personal stories there, and they're the they're the stories that carry, I think, that the, the, yeah, make us understand, like as readers, make us understand the, the, both the theoretical uh, um, drive of the book and, and also the, the the laws that are in question as well. So um, it's a really, yeah, really definitely yeah. an engaging read. So, yeah. So,
1: you know, so this was based on, I don't know, I mean, some of it was done in summers and some other long portions. So um, I, this was an ethnography based on, Sitting in the courtroom for many many years, but then also um, sitting in on police stations, in all these kinds of mediation venues, following the counselors. um, For you know, so I primarily worked in that area rather than singling out litigants. And I really wanted to sort of bring that sense of how people negotiate, how they tell stories, how they tell sort of pedagogical stories through that. And yeah, so
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. good, good. Okay, I think and we spoke a little bit before um, before we started recording that you finished this book in well, 2013 or so. So I suppose I now... you finished
1: writing it, yeah. and finished,
0: finished writing it then, yeah. And so now uh, I guess you've moved on to the thing. So I was wondering, what are your current projects or what sort of future projects do you have in mind?
1: Actually, um, you know, right after I finished the manuscript and while I was still editing it, um, I had a Fulbright in India and I, I um, wanted to actually... Um, take off on um, something that emerged very um, uh, had, you know, I had been thinking about since um, the book and that emerged from this last chapter we were talking about, which is um, I was looking at the civil and criminal law and I began to notice these um, um, so-called men's groups, men's rights groups, they call them, men's rights mm-hmm. activists, they mm-hmm. call themselves. And um, so the ways in which they, they totally, they target 498A as one of their main cases and, um, so, you know, in my, my, uh, dissertation work was based on, um, it, it sort of worked on women and property in Delhi. And in the, this, this book was based primarily on field work in Calcutta, but I was like, I wanted to try this sort of seeing what this national movement that, and how they talked about law and marriage. And also, so it went into, um, Looking at these um, men's rights groups, how they were organizing. So it is on the one hand a study of the men's rights movement as a new social movement, right? Very, very, very different, right, from feminist movements, but um, nonetheless, it's a new and vibrant social movement. We're using sort of different ways to recruit people. So um, I kind of went around the country. It's like I'm I'm now forgetting the number of cities. I think I mentioned about eleven cities. Uh, I interviewed diff- or um, interviewed at least eleven groups of people. I went to their meetings, um, but and I uh, sort of was trying to find out how they think about feminism and law and uh, mm. um, marriage. But you know, it's also a, so for um, someone who is a feminist. It's also um, a, both a challenging a challenging project, both because you know they, these groups are very often. Um, Um, anti-feminist, very specifically anti-feminist and also very misogynist in scope. But it's also a challenge as an ethnographer because there were indeed lots of people who had been through really great uh, legal trouble and um, and marital trouble in ways that had shaped their radicalism. So as an ethnographer, it's an interesting challenge to um, also listen to those stories and to understand, you know, how they intersect with these other narratives that we're talking about. And so then I've been, you know, I have all that data. I'm I'm trying to write it in little pieces. A couple of pieces have um, come out now. I think you saw one. Um, And uh, one of the uh, another thing that I've been working on that I think was in my head sort of since that project, but tangentially related. So after, you know, 10 years working on Divorce, rape, domestic violence. I was like, oh, I need something I enjoy. So, <laughs> right. so um, I uh, decided since I really love reading detective novels, uh-huh. I have begun uh, right now preliminarily interviewing women detectives in um, India thus far. Wow. And wow. so it's quite funny that, you know, many, many of the stories they have to tell, however are about investigating divorces and about investigating potential marriages. So okay. um, people are making fun of me that I'm like, I tried to get away, but I'm right back where I started. So
0: Thanks so much for listening to the new books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook. And today we've been talking about the trouble with marriage, feminist confront law and violence in India by Shumati Basu. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did and I hope you download again next time. ta